Attention, your attention please. The following podcast contains spoilers. If you haven't seen the film yet, then do not continue listening. Thank you. Welcome to episode four of the Brothers Grimmer podcast. I'm Fran. I'm Alberto. We're two brothers separated by time and distance, reconnecting through our mutual love of horror movies. And this episode, we're discussing Blair Witch. I feel like it should be Blair Witch 3 or it has some number (laughs) next to it or Blair Witch 2016. Did you see Blair Witch 2, uh, Book of Shadows? I did not. Me neither. Okay. That movie was out of continuity. It was a movie that was a real quick cash grab, and it was based on people's reactions to the first movie. So it was sort of a a one-off. I heard it didn't take place in the woods. Is that correct? Yeah, it mostly took place after uh, a drunken evening in the woods. It's sort of a Rashomon take on Blair Witch, where each character has a different hazy memory of what happened the evening before, and it leads to paranoia and people killing each other after the fact in an abandoned warehouse, which is probably the most uninspired setting for a horror movie. But we're not talking about that movie. We're talking about this one. First of all, your question always is, did you like it? I liked it more than Blair Witch in general, sitting through the movie. Excellent. But Blair Witch, the original one, made more of a lasting impact than this one did. Hmm. How about you? I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Whether it will have a lasting impact on me, I'm uncertain. But I definitely was uh, quite shaken by it for a long period of time. I'm curious to see what parts of it shook you up. We should probably do a brief synopsis of the movie itself. That's your territory. Uh, (laughs) If you insist. The movie is Blair Witch. It's a 2016 release. It's directed by Adam Wingard. It's a very tight 89 minutes long, which I like. It's a very short, lean horror movie. It starts with a garbled videotape of someone screaming and running through the house from the end of the first film. But the footage this time is in color. We hear a voice off screen asking, did you see it? The video reverses, and we pan back to find that the speaker is James Donahue, the younger brother of the female lead of the first film, and he pauses what turns out to be a YouTube video to catch the reflection of a grizzled old woman in a mirror in that self-same house. He is convinced that it is his sister who has somehow survived in the woods in this house that's featured at the end of the first film. That leads to him, his childhood friend Peter, Peter's girlfriend Ashley, and Lisa, who is an amateur filmmaker, who brings along a host of walkie-talkies, GPS, Bluetooth video headsets, and a drone to make a film back in the woods of Burkittsville, starting with the young couple that found the YouTube footage and uploaded it. They meet up with this uh, sort of 
low rent kind of hillbilly couple. They actually have a Confederate flag hanging in their rec room. The young couple of locals offer to take them into the woods, and they were actually quite insistent. They want to be part of any expedition. The troop of six young characters go in, and from the get-go, the moment that they are crossing a river deeper into the woods, the character of Ashley, Peter's girlfriend, gets a foot wound. They shortly thereafter decide to camp for the evening. There is the usual host of unusual sounds. They wake up the next morning to find piles of rocks and stick men hanging around their campsite, much like what happened to the three in the first film. But, and I was really happy about this, the hillbilly couple turn out to be pranksters, and they are quickly discovered as having arranged both the rocks and the stick men, and they're kicked off of the expedition. And everybody goes separately back to where they left their parked cars. It's around then that the GPS fails. The team finds their way back to the original campsite where they had camped after walking in circles for hours. Ashley's wound gets worse. She has something pulsating underneath her skin. The hillbilly couple come back insisting that several days have passed since they last saw the foursome. While Lane runs into the woods crazily, his girlfriend, who is starving, stays behind. I think that's enough to set up the, the, the action. Oh, very good. So let's leave it there. I'm a big fan of this director, I have to say. Adam Wingard, that, he's only 33 years old. That was a big old. disappointment for me because I saw your next in the movie theaters and found it really engaging and exciting, the opposite of this movie. I feel like he's a very clever director and he pairs off with the same screenwriter in a lot of his projects, Simon Barrett. And it's the same for this film. And I think that Maybe what you're seeing in the difference between your next and this film, even though it's exactly the same creative forces, both behind the camera and writing the script, is they are very deeply reverential to the original source material. They were trying to create a lot of the same effect and also, I think in some clever ways, address a lot of the easy complaints about the first film. What would have happened if they'd been better equipped? What would have happened if they ran upstairs instead of downstairs into the haunted house that appears at the end of the first film? What if they kept their wits about them? And what if they tried to... <laughs> Certainly, we find out what happens to a larger party, and it's essentially the same. Well, I think this is an interesting point in terms of going back to the first film, since it's basically referred to throughout this movie. You said you enjoyed the first one. I remember sitting in the theater, and if I'm tell me if I'm correct or not, but my understanding was most of the dialogue in the first one was ad-libbed. The actors didn't really know what was going on. They're, they were in the woods, and they're basically creating their own dialogue. That's correct. A lot of the first film was improvised. They had broad sketches uh, built out of what they expected to happen. The director's actually terrorized the three actors 
at some point, the director started denying them food towards the end of the shoot. It was all shot in sequence. And strangely, there were some special effects. They actually had a woman in a white costume with fans around her, billowing uh, robes flowing out behind her, lit up. And since everything was improvised, including the camera work, we would hear Heather Donahue in the first film screaming, what the hell is that? But they never actually turned around to capture that with the camera. So yeah, a lot of it's very ab-libbed. So over a decade later, when I'm sitting in this movie, that's what I remembered really disliking from the original Blair Witch, that we're listening to these characters, these actors, who may or may not be artistic, and I'm thinking, boy, it's hard to create art on the fly in terms of the dialogue, (laughs) and and basically these actors are proving it. And so (laughs) (laughs) over a decade later, that's mostly what I remember. So what I remember from the first movie was hating the dialogue throughout the entire movie and then being chilled by the last two minutes. (laughs) When they run into the house. When they run into the house and that the, um, and the final image or the final, you know, couple of images really spooked me and are seared into my memory. So let's talk about those last three minutes of the first film. The last two remaining team members are lost in the woods. The girl, Heather, actually finds some human remains, which she keeps hidden from the other team members so that he doesn't panic because he's already seeming to come unhinged. They come across a house and they hear the voice of their missing team member. And the guy thinks that, oh, we found him. He's here. He's calling out to us. And the girl knows better, but she's unable to stop the other guy from running into the house. There are handprints of small children all over the walls. She chases down into the cellar to find the other guy, and he is standing facing the wall. And it's a call back to a story of a serial killer that was relayed earlier in the film, acting under the direction of the long-dead Blair Witch, who told him to kidnap children and murder them in his basement, and he would make one face against the wall while he murdered the other so the other wouldn't watch. Uh, And we hear her screaming. Seemingly, she gets knocked out, and the camera focuses on a patch of dirt, and then the plays out for several minutes, and then the film ends. So for me, those images really stuck with me. They work amazingly well, though I have to say, even though you were not that impressed with the performances or the dialogue, I mean, they're the culmination of a lot of what gets said earlier. That image at the end, it wouldn't be half as frightening if they actually hadn't set up her documentary that she's filming and interviewing the locals and talking about the stories of actually several several killers in Maryland who all attributed their... Except for the fact that I, find that I found that dialogue in the original movie so annoying that I tuned out. I can see that. Heather, in the first film especially, is not meant to be a likable character, and I think that she is dripping with film school pretension. And so, yeah, why would you be taking any of those stories especially seriously? And in fact, I think not really maybe paying that much attention throughout the movie and then just seeing one of the characters facing the corner or facing the wall and 
it's just eerie whether you know exactly what's going on or not. So part of it maybe was the mystery of it by not paying attention to the, to the dialogue uh, made it more powerful on some level. But I just know I hated the, the dialogue and I didn't mind the dialogue in this. While none of the kids were exceptional actors, I felt they were actors and it did feel like they were operating off of a script. So let's get, uh, let me ask you. So before I saw the movie, you said uh, it, it had given you chills. Sure. What are the parts of the movie that you thought were effective in terms of being scary? I thought that the sound design for the film was tremendous. The first person to get killed is best friend of the lead character, Peter, uh, as he goes off into the woods to pick up some firewood. It is a sequence where whatever is coming for him and whatever attacks him remains invisible. But the sound design during the sequence is tremendous. It begins with twigs snapping and then branches breaking and then something that sounds like footfalls approaching him. Him running into the darkness and looking all around him. For me, it captured something that I'd remembered from the first film, which was really less of an event and more of a feeling where you are peering into literally into the darkness, into the corners of the screen, looking for any flash of movement. Ultimately, we don't see what it what it is that kills him, but I, I found that sequence just based on sound alone to be really frightening. I have to agree with you on that. I, uh, the, the, those booming sounds really filled up the theater, and, and the fact that you don't know or you never see anything coming were, was pretty effective. Indeed, indeed. There were some moments where they built a little bit on the history of the Blair Witch. You might have remembered from the first film, or maybe not since you probably tuned it out. Uh, They talked about her execution and how she had cursed the land. And in this film, one of the hillbillies, Lane, talks a little bit further about how she was left to die. She was strapped to a tree in what was essentially a primitive version of a rack where her limbs were tied with heavy rocks. So she was not merely left to die of exposure or hypothermia. She was actually left to be stretched out. While the film shows you very, very fleeting images, I'd say it's millisecond images of what is pursuing them, One of those looks like a distended white cadaver with black eyes and a black putrid mouth. And it is seen blurrily from a distance, but I actually thought that was fairly terrifying. And I'm glad that we didn't get a close-up, we didn't get any sort of detail on it, but it chilled me to see anything. This is, uh, much like the first film, you are scanning the screen for anything and to have caught even the momentary glimpse of that even if it's a special effect it's a very brief one and it chilled me to the bone well i didn't put two and two together and think it was the elongated witch but i did find that image of the white creature or person haunting but it did remind me of another movie that we've discussed in the podcast it follows where you had one of the forms that the deadly being took was a tall person. Oh, yeah. The giant. The giant, yes. yeah. That was terrifying. Terrifying. And I, yes. And that reminded me, in a good way, of that terrifying giant. Yes. Um, 
It seems like giants frighten me in movies. (laughs) (laughs) The abnormal, the the strange. Yeah, it it is such a shocking image. But uh, this is something we should probably talk about. You you didn't put two and two together, and you didn't think it was the distended corpse of the witch. I just thought it was something (laughs) scary. I didn't know what it was, but, you know, and somehow either the witch, but I didn't figure, I did, it looked like a man. So to me, it didn't seem like the... The mm-hmm. you know the abused corpse of the witch. Well, I have a question. In the original, when the characters find that their campground has been visited by something and that the stick figures are there and the piles of rocks, do you remember whether you found that eerie or not? I thought it was very scary. And what I found most scary was I didn't believe it was something supernatural. So much of the first film could be taken as something plausible, I thought that they were the victims of crazy locals, that they are being hounded by hillbillies, and that in and of itself is a crazy horror genre that frightens the hell out of me, which is, I I guess, rural horror. I I think since we were kids and things like The Hills Have Eyes and, geez, everything from Deliverance would make me think that, like... Well, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, uh, crazy locals in the country would really, really frighten me. One historical note to this, Deliverance, oddly enough, was part of our summer reading list in the same prep school that we went to. Yep, I remember it. And I remember a very beloved English lit teacher showing us a videotape of the movie, which I thought was horrifying. And so my question about the stick figures and the stone formations is, how did you feel when you saw them in this updated movie? Well, they make two appearances. I love that the two locals are found to be liars. I love that they set it up because it's one of those things that played so much on my imagination in the first film. Are these just people harassing these kids? But even before we realized that the first set was part of a prank or a fraud, did you find either appearance of the stick figures eerie? Or if it was eerie, was it less eerie or more eerie than the how you felt in the original movie? That's a really good question. No, I didn't find it eerie either time. (laughs) In their second appearance, the kids come back to the campground. Two days have passed and the sun isn't coming up. The starving hillbilly girl is is eating a power bar at their campsite, and they discover all the brand new stick figures. And they are mammoth, but that did not frighten me in the least. It is when the hillbilly girl begins crying and points to one of the stick figures and says, it's got my hair on it. And at that point, Ashley, who is feverish from the infection in her foot, comes out of her tent. She's incredibly upset that Peter is lost. They don't know that he's dead. She grabs the stick figure that has the local girl's hair on it and snaps it in half, and the local girl herself breaks in two. She becomes mangled immediately, and her body is broken, and she dies. That, I thought, was a shocking and great scary scene. The stick figures themselves, I had no real association, and they were just window dressing, but the minute they became a voodoo doll, so unexpectedly, I was shocked, and that was a great moment. I do think I found the appearance of the stick figures and stone formations in the first movie eerie, and like you in this movie, I did not, because that seems to be ubiquitous now. There's even uh, one of the episodes of the current 
American Horror Story series has the same figures in the woods. Have you seen that? I've never seen any of the seasons of American Horror Story. Well, they often refer to <laughs> classic horror movies literally taking the same either music or props. Last season, they played some of the same music that was in The Hunger. Oh, cool. Referring to some of that lesbian vampire scenes. And this season, they actually have the same exact sick figures. So I've seen it too many times already, although I have to say that the large format stick figures in their second appearance in the movie did elicit a reaction, like, oof, this is a little different. This is a little strange. And so I found that slightly effective. And how did you feel when Ashley snaps the figure and the local girl dies? Well, I find it chilling when you describe it, <laughs> but to be honest, I couldn't hear what was going on or see very well what was going on. And so for anyone that's listening, this is there's a lot of screaming in this movie. And everything takes place at night. And so what you're describing is scary, but I didn't quite <laughs> pick all those details out while it was happening while I was watching the movie. And for anyone that's listening to this and hasn't seen the film yet, I'd have to recommend sitting in the back row of the theater just because like any found footage, especially handheld found footage, this is a vertigo-inducing film with lots of jump cuts and lots of shaky cam. All right, so talking about jump cuts, it made me think of the jump-in-your-seat moments. And one of my dislikes of this film is how many times characters rush in from beyond the frame of, of the camera and basically say boo and that I think the screenwriters must have and the director must have known that that would be annoying because at one point that one of the characters who's just been surprised as the audience has says stop doing that all the time uh, <laughs> and that's how I felt watching it yeah actually if I had to list any cons about the movie that would actually be one of them as well characters do jump in from off screen and they constantly <laughs> they they say people's names James Lisa you know in a way that nobody <laughs> says that even even in a moment of urgency that is said in such a fashion that that's the way kids like scare the shit out of each other right uh, I mean you might no, scream no. out their name if you're as you're approaching them from ten feet away or six feet away but not you know six inches away. <laughs> No, and with that precise emphasis, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, those are very cheap. And the entire theater burst into laughter when the character said, stop doing that. But I have to admit, that was maybe four or five, too many of those cheap jump scares. And you described what could have been a chilling moment, the uh, foot wound, which, you know, as it's getting worse and worse, does have a foreboding, what's going to happen to this person? And at one point I thought it reminded me of uh, like a Cloverfield moment where something gross is going to, or alien, pop out of this character's foot. But it basically didn't go anywhere. How do you mean? I, I mean, actually, I was wincing through the entire sequence where she is pulling out what looks to be like a centipede out of there. I thought it would develop into something. So something has its own pulse and is coming out. And she, yeah, she pulls out a centipede. But I thought something more interesting was going to come out of the wound. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm always grossed out when somebody uses tweezers or reaches inside of a wound. That already makes me very upset. But I have to be in agreement with you about the expectation of what it was going to be. I actually thought that Ashley was going to turn into the witch. I thought she was going to become possessed. 
when she gets delusional and is clearly feverish and not thinking straight, I thought that she was going to escape being a victim and possibly whatever it was that had happened to Heather, when we see the nightmarish look of Heather in the mirror at the, in the opening footage, I thought that maybe that was going to be what was going to happen to Ashley as well. But you're right, it, it doesn't happen and it doesn't develop into anything larger than a disgusting sequence of self-operation. What I thought was the most disappointing setup that didn't go anywhere was the whole sense of time not following a standard rule and that characters who would, like the, what you described as the hillbillies, when they'd gone off and come back, they say, don't you realize it's been however many days since we left and it, to, to the characters that are still at the, at the, the campground? They right, think it's five the days. same. And he said it was five days? Yes. Yeah. And he's got a beard and they're obviously gone through hell because their clothes are in tatters. Um, and, uh, that coupled with the fact that it's still nighttime at eight o'clock in the morning, I thought those were really effective, eerie moments, almost as eerie as the, the giant that seems to scare me that didn't, it's it's giving me chills with you talking about it right now. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like there's a kernel of that in the first film that I'd even thought about kids in the first film. They have cell phones. They can't get signals. They can't find their bearings. More and more as the first film went on, I kept on thinking to myself, these kids are not in 1999 anymore. They are out of time. They they are not anywhere that anyone could find them. I don't know if you remember from the opening title card for the first Blair Witch Project, they say that they find their footage in the first film in the remains of a destroyed house. On the website, they show it, and it's basically nothing. It's 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 a couple of brick walls. It's uh, a little bit of plasterwork here and there, but it is not the house from the end of the movie. So it makes me think the entire time they were filming, they were lost back in time someplace else. And I feel like the new film really takes this idea and really, really runs with it much more explicitly. Well, it runs with it in terms of presenting the idea and making it very clear that something's going on, but it doesn't lead. It's almost like this. I feel it's the same as the the foot wound. It doesn't lead to anything significant. It's very effective in being spooky, Yes. but I wish it had been developed more. I would disagree with that on one point. I think the best thing that it leads to is the realization that the footage from the very beginning of the movie that James is watching on YouTube, the one that he freezes where he thinks he sees Heather in the reflection of the mirror, it is the footage from the end of this film. He is seeing the footage of Lisa running up the stairs to meet him on the second story of that creepy house. So they're seeing a preview of their own deaths. I liked the wraparound of that because it's an extension of the time loop that you're talking about. I see what you're saying, but I didn't think of that during the movie. But this brings up a point that I've noticed on some of the comments on IMDb. Oh. People complained that the title card saying this is found footage basically gives away that all the characters we see in the movie are going to die. And I have to admit that when I was watching the movie, I didn't think that. 
I didn't think, oh, these are all going to be dead. But a lot of negative comments on IMDb say, well, why do we care about these characters since it basically gives away that they're not going to make it? And usually in horror movies, you're rooting for someone like the last girl or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, how, the final girl. The final girl. How did you feel? Did you think that, oh, these characters are all going to die and you still found it interesting or, or did you check out a little bit? I will counter your question with, with the question of how did you feel about the characters in the first film? I didn't find them interesting. <laughs> I thought the characters in the first film were so stupid and their dialogue was so stupid that I didn't care. You didn't care that they died? I didn't really care that they died, except I was spooked out by that guy you know, in the corner facing the wall. I feel like the characters in this film are a little bit better drawn, and they are a little bit more likable. They're not fully formed characters. We see them in these contexts that very quickly run into horror. This movie moves along much more speedily towards the horrific moments and towards the deaths, since we have six characters to kill, than the first film does, which means we spend less time with them, but I I think they're better actors. I think their dialogue is better. I kind of liked Ashley, and it's disappointing that she dies as unceremoniously as she does. But I did fear for them. I I feel like the amount of dread that's built up at each of their deaths, I I I was terrified for them, and I felt terrified in my seat. And throughout the movie, did you think to yourself, oh, they're all going to die? Because I didn't. I was wondering. Hmm, I, I didn't. No, no. I actually thought that maybe somebody would make it. And like I said, from the beginning, I thought maybe Ashley would survive and have a fate worse than death and become the next Blair Witch. I was imagining all kinds of other scenarios, but I did not expect them to die. Partially also because of the smart way they set it up insofar as these kids certainly have every technological advantage that you could conceive of. Yeah, I I actually thought that there was going to be maybe someone who was going to escape. I felt the same way. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Were there any other sequences that you can think of that you found scary in the film? I think I've mentioned the ones I found scary. I I found the time issue spooky and eerie. Mm -hmm. I found the approach to the the house with that white figure terrifying. But the biggest disappointment was, I mean, that image from the first film that was always seared. And I remember I, on Netflix or something, once fast-forwarded to the end just to rewatch it. Basically, that scene is repeated, uh, except now you have two figures facing the wall at the very end. Yes. And it did not have even close to the same impact that that mysterious scene had in the first one. Well, let's circle back to the very end here in a minute. There's one or two more scenes I'd like to talk about briefly. And one is when the kids are all separated. They're being attacked by an invisible force, again, invisible, right after the local hillbilly girl gets snapped in half. Tents fly up in the air. Everyone begins running in a different direction, screaming. Ashley, who's got the foot wound, gets separated from the group. And in a feverish, delusional state, she notices that the drone is caught on a high tree branch and she begins to scale the tree to reach the drone, thinking that this will be a way to figure a way out of the woods. They show her extended climb up through her Bluetooth cam. She slips and falls out. She is screaming as she falls and hitting all these tree branches on her way down. And the 
bone-cracking thud when she hits the ground and we know that she's dead is scary enough, but it reminds me a lot of the ending of the first film because her Bluetooth camera falls away. And instead of focusing on a patch of dirt randomly, it actually falls in such a way that we see her body. We see it and the camera lingers on it. And then I was absolutely terrified when her body gets pulled away off screen. That is a moment that honestly, if the first film had ended with us seeing Heather and with her body being pulled away, it, it made my blood run cold. It's some of these simpler things actually that really scared me. Look, the way you describe it, it's chilling, but for some reason, <laughs> while I'm sitting there thinking, how stupid are you as this you know, weak woman uh, whose who's feverish tries to climb this uh, tree, it, it didn't work for me. But the concept is scary. I agree. Okay. It, <laughs> I didn't find it scary in execution, though. There's no apologies. Everyone uh, has a completely different reaction and sees a different film. One last sequence I'd like to talk about, and then I'd like to talk about the actual movie-going experience. The last sequence that I thought really made a big impression on me was in the scary house, which occupies literally the last 20 minutes of the movie. Uh, the first film, it's the last three minutes when they finally come across the house. In this film, there is a raging thunderstorm the two remaining kids, Lisa and James, are being rained on and they're, they're running and they find the house. James is convinced that he sees his sister in a window up on the second floor and Lisa is trying to convince him not to go in. He goes in and begins to go upstairs and sees a variety of images, one of which could be the Blair Witch. He sees his friend Peter, who we know is dead, facing against a wall in the corner of one of the upstairs rooms. But that image vanishes. All these images seem to come and go. It becomes very haunted housey. I don't know if those were especially effective for me. Lisa is left uh, standing outside in the rain, and she catches the briefest glimpse of that distended cadaver and runs into the house and runs downstairs into the basement. She is confronted by Lane, the surviving hillbilly who has a crazy long beard now and is demented and forces her into an oubliette, a hole in the ground with uh, a lid on it. And he forces her in there, locks her in there. What does he say uh, when he pushes her he in? He says to her, I have to do what she tells me to do. Essentially, we're given the idea that Lane has genuinely been compromised since the very beginning of the movie, possibly even when he uploaded the video, which is the foreteller of their doom. When it's questioned earlier in the film, he spent the night in the woods and he came back alive. You're given the idea that perhaps this was his mission, to lure more souls in there. Well, anyway, while Lisa is in the crawl space, she finds a gap in a wall and she begins uh, crawling into these subterranean tunnels that get smaller and smaller and she is clawing her way through pools of brackish water and mud and gets stuck. And then that amazing sound design kicks in. We hear those thundering crashes coming closer and closer behind her in the tunnel as she's trying to dislodge herself and crawl further. I thought that was really, really frightening. It, 
didn't do anything for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you something. It didn't do anything for the audience members in the theater that I was in. The minute that she is stuck and the sounds begin creeping up behind her, the teenage boys who were sitting behind me kept on calling out, pull, expecting her to be yanked away. Because it's, at this point, a really commonplace image for someone who is crawling under a bed or crawling on all fours to be pulled away from the camera that's filming them. That's become itself, I think, like a found footage cliche. I mean, she had no choice but to follow that tunnel because there's no other exit from the pole she was pushed into. But the whole time she's trying to dig her way out, I'm like, why are you assuming there's an exit on the other side? It could have been blocked or it could have, you know, there's no, it doesn't necessarily lead anywhere. But the truth is she, she had no choice. She didn't have a choice. And there is the mention earlier when Lane and his hillbilly girlfriend are talking to the group when they're at their first campsite that the house that Rustin Parr, the serial killer, uh, lived in where he murdered all those children had long since been destroyed and that there were tunnels underneath it, but those tunnels led nowhere. See, I should have paid more attention. <laughs> I think something's becoming incredibly clear that uh, during a Blair Witch film, you don't listen to the dialogue <laughs> <at> Exactly. <all. laughs> I, I think this is true for the first one and for the second one. <laughs> That's okay. That's that's all right. I, I'm here to decipher it. Thank you. It's now it's scary. And so let's go back to the let's go to the end and where absolutely the very last scene. You want to mm-hmm. describe it with where we end up with two characters facing the corner and half the chills. To be sure. So Lisa manages to escape that tunnel reemerges in a different corner of the basement and stabs Lane to death in the neck out of self-defense and escapes from the basement and goes upstairs to find James, who thinks that they have just separated. Again, there's, I think, a time differential in their moment of separation. Together, they run up into the attic. There is a gigantic flash of light that passes through the broken windows and boards of the house. They hear the presence approaching of the gigantic thunderous footfalls. Uh, We assume that it's the witch. Uh, I assumed it was the distended corpse that we saw earlier. I assumed it was a spaceship. Because <laughs> that image is so common of, you know, the lights, glaring the lights. light coming through the, the slats of something, and it's always like some extraterrestrial or a spaceship or something. That's an interesting take on it. I thought it was somehow a side effect of their lost days, of all the hours of sunlight that they had missed. And somehow it's part of the time loop that they're stuck in that suddenly there is the bright flash of light that should have been several days that they did not have. This is part of the witch's manipulation of time. It's very poetic. So, but uh, I, I can see how it could possibly be perceived as, uh, as, as an alien if, if you weren't paying attention. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, they, they do hear uh, the footfalls of the presence approaching them, James insists that they stand in the corner, he and Lisa. He quickly says, if we don't look at her, she can't kill us. Then James pauses, and he begins speaking to somebody, 
and it's clear that he thinks that he hears the voice of his sister, but it is a trick and a trap of the witch, and he turns around to see if his sister is there, and he gets pulled away and clearly dies. Lisa grabs his camera and very cleverly trying to use it as a mirror, uh, looking at the viewfinder, she tries to look over her shoulder and tries to begin slowly walking her way towards the exit of the attic. And then she hears James's voice apologizing to her and she makes the same mistake in her hysteria and turns around and clearly gets killed. Which ruins, the, the stupidity of the moment just ruins the chills here. <laughs> I was expecting, so this is like a, is it Perseus and Medusa, where he looks, he... Um, yes, it is. And I thought something terrifying is going to appear in the viewfinder behind her, and instead, she just decides, instead of looking through the camera, decides to look at wherever the voice is coming from. You, you asked me a Greek myth, and of course, you know, what I was thinking of was uh, Orpheus and Persephone, and... Um, <laughs> them walking out of Hades, and uh, Orpheus is not supposed to turn around. And they look back. Uh, but he does. He, it's irresistible. He does. And his quest to free her ends in failure because he can't resist. This is an ancient literary conceit. This is Lot's wife turning around to look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and turning into a pillar of salt. I think that anytime we're told not to look, it is an irresistible urge, and that makes it a classic conceit and certainly a trope, certainly a cliche. I have to say, I was so caught up in the moment between, again, the amazingly great sound design and her looking into the camera, and even though they they had very quickly come up with this sort of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, don't look directly at it kind of solution... I was definitely scared, and I was caught in... Uh, but what were you expecting? So and did it live <laughs> up to your expectation? I, I was thinking that we'd get another glimpse of that descended cadaver uh, right. approaching her, and that we don't. That would have been terrifying. We, we, yes. I was fully expecting to get a full-on, close-up, detailed look of the thing that was scaring them that we only got the briefest millisecond glimpse of. But that didn't happen. But the anticipation of it, I have to say, was killing me. And then disappointment? No, I just, just dread and the, that usual dirty feeling that I feel at the end of a horror movie where everyone's died. <laughs> I thought it just seemed lazy, too, that uh, to have these uh, voices call out to these two remaining survivors and that they would just turn around. I thought it was just lazy. For example, when, when the sister's voice, the long-lost sister, starts calling out to her brother as if she'd seen him yesterday and just saying his name, I thought that was lazy. At least she could say, oh you finally found me or thanks for saving me or something like that. And if they had somehow expanded on it or made sense as to why the character would turn around, I thought it would, it might've been more effective. In fact, I found it not effective at all. I have to respectfully disagree if only because I felt it was again, a seed of an idea that was planted in the first film. We know that midway through the first film that Josh dies we see Heather wake up early one morning and find a piece of his flannel shirt. And when she unwraps it, there's obviously hair and teeth and a tongue in there. But as the film winds down to its conclusion, we hear Josh's voice calling them. And it's clear that within the, the 
universe of the movie, the witch has the ability to capture someone's voice and imitate it. I don't disagree with that. I understood that, but I thought the voice itself wouldn't be enough to get someone to turn around when you know you're in the same house with a witch. Fair enough. <laughs> I All right, I'm going to ask you, where did you see it and what was the audience like? I work at uh, Blue Smoke Battery Park. And I will be editing that out of this podcast so that you know none of our fans begin stalking you. I don't mind as long as they tip as long as they tip well. Um, right, very good. And it's uh, within a hotel that has a multiplex in it. And since it's kind of off the beaten path, even though it's in Manhattan, even though it's downtown uh, where there's tons of people, it's on the other side of a highway between the highway and two blocks to the river, so that multiplex is often empty. And so one day after work, um, uh, late afternoon, I just uh, went into that multiplex, and I think there might have been... I was surprised there was... I was not the only person in there. There may have been 10 people. Where did you see it? I was invited to a special sneak preview of the movie at the last possible moment by a friend of mine, Katie, who I only see a couple of times a year. We went to this dodecaplex in downtown Chicago that's very popular called AMC River East 21. And when we went into the screening, the press and marketing crew for the studio were there and they demanded our cell phones, which I thought was a great move, to be perfectly honest with you. They didn't want anyone filming it. But on some level, I thought it was a great move because no one was tempted to look at their phone while the movie was going on. The movie definitely had everyone's undivided attention. Also, you're more say. vulnerable without a phone. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and so was it a packed house? It was absolutely full to the brim. I have to tell you about the kind of person that shows up for a special sneak preview for a horror movie. They were mostly teenage boys with horror movie tattoos on their skinny toothpick arms. And remind me the rating of this movie. Was it R? This was an R movie, though I have to say there was very little gore. Probably rated R more for language. Lots of shouted expletives. So the theater was mostly teenage boys. It had an unwashed smell that was pretty rank. <laughs> and the minute we sat down for the movie, some guy in front of me began vaping marijuana. Oh. So it really added to the funk that was already kind of like an adolescent rec room. It was it was a really ripe movie house. And and do you think that improved your experience or <laughs> I, lessened it? You know, there's something very curious that happened during it, and that was they were catcalling and calling out fairly often and it was clear that they were jumping. There were lots of screams, and there was almost an equal amount of chest-thumping bravado that was being thrown out because I, I think there's a lot of insecure masculinity. There's a lot of machismo. It takes a lot of pride to admit that you're being scared by something, and I, I don't think any of these kids had the guts to admit to it, even though I could hear them jumping in their seats. I could hear them screaming. And as the film closed, the overwhelming reaction I heard from people was, ah, oh, that wasn't that scary. I feel like that's happened to me in the past. Yeah, there, there's a lot of very fragile male pride on the line when it comes to horror movies. That'd be an interesting thing to pay attention to going forward in terms of, uh, you know, it's easy to 
to say you're not scared after the moment has passed, but in the moment, <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely true. Right. It's it's easy to laugh at the roller coaster after you were on it, but you were scared. Absolutely. And so, what letter grade would you give this movie? I give it an A minus. A minus. The only dings that I had against this movie were the excessive jump scares. It takes the ideas in the first film and at least takes them a few steps further than the first film did, uh, which is honestly usually the best thing I can hope for in a belated sequel. I'm going to have a hard time grading this because the first movie, I hated basically the entire movie, but that last <laughs> image was so yes. effective that I think I'd, I don't know what grade to give that one. And this one in comparison has much more eerie scenes throughout the movie, so the pacing is great. But the end was a complete disappointment. So I think they kind of even each other out. So maybe I'd give them both a C. Fair enough. <laughs> it's a belated horror sequel. We don't get a lot of belated horror sequels unless they're called Phantasm. I, I think these run in, into the realm of sequels that, that nobody asked for. <laughs> uh, was anybody waiting for a Blair Witch sequel? I don't think anybody really was. It, it caught everyone by surprise, especially since they marketed the film as the woods until only a couple of months before the film was released. Right. Nobody knew that this was a Blair Witch sequel. And it's a hard sequel, uh, despite the fondness for both amateur and professional film critics to say, it's a soft reboot, it's a soft rehash, it's a reboot, and it's it's not. It, it's a sequel. There's one scene I forgot to mention that I always, that I find eerie, and I remember finding it eerie in a in a 70s movie. I don't did you ever see a movie called The Legacy with Catherine Ross from and Sundance and Butch Cassidy and The Graduate? I love that movie. And oh. I was so scared of it when we were kids. I own it. <laughs> the Shout Factory issued a Blu-ray remastering of it and I snatched it up immediately. The yeah. scene that brought The Legacy to mind is when they uh, when all the characters go off and try to get back to the car and it, you know, it turns out they end up in the same place. So that idea of being trapped and trying to escape but ending up in the same place, I don't know if you remember, but that happens in The Legacy too, where they try to drive away from this estate and they end up coming back to it. I think it may have happened in Burnt Offerings as well. And that's one of my favorite movies too. <laughs> there is one horror film that opened up and it, it was a, a good sleeper hit, but it closed relatively quickly before I could even catch it called Lights Out. It's based on a very, very chilling YouTube short film that's only about 10 minutes long by an Australian filmmaker. But the YouTube video scared the bejesus out of me. And the feature-length film, we saw a very scary trailer for right before we saw The Conjuring 2, Electric Boogaloo. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, that's going to be out on video right before Halloween. I, if we don't see anything in the theater, I was going to ask if we could maybe see that one. Of course. I mean, there, it seems like there won't be a shortage of things to talk about, but uh, I look forward to figuring out the next one. Excellent. And as usual, we'll ask our listeners to catch us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. This is really not a review podcast. This is a, a conversation. For me, you know, there are plenty of professional reviews. There's plenty of YouTube amateur reviews. Those are less interesting to me than having a real conversation about the movie, especially when it's full of spoilers and we can just talk about everything at will. This is honestly the beginning of a conversation for a lot of our listeners, so feel free to continue the conversation in our forums. 
and buy our t-shirts. And see you at the movies. And see you at the movies. The Brothers Grimmer is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network, all rights reserved. Our music is by Charlie Duggan, age eight. Charlie will not be permitted to listen to this podcast until he is 18 years old. Thank <laughs> you.